You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Western chemistry professor Martin Stillman. Martin has been at the forefront of innovation concerning metals within chemistry for the best part of 50 years. His work is capable of looking inward, such as looking at the effects that metal delivery can play within biology, as well as outward, He's long been at the forefront of solar technology, innovation, and implementation. He was gracious enough to come on the show to discuss the forward-thinking nature of his research and what he thinks the future holds for humans' biological relationship with metals. Later on, we talk about the likelihood of universal prominence of solar cell technology in neighborhoods just like yours and mine. Here we go. You describe your research area as being bio-inorganic chemistry. So why don't you tell us the distinction between that and bio-organic chemistry and everything it encompasses? Yeah, yeah. bio-inorganic chemistry is a sub-discipline of inorganic chemistry, which therefore makes it quite different than the sub-discipline of organic chemistry. In bio-inorganic chemistry, the interest is in metal ions and their interaction with biological molecules that is interaction with physiological chemistry. Those molecules, of course, are one could be considered to be bio-organic chemistry, but it is the metal ion interaction that's important. And it is said, because this is something you can't count as easily, that over 30% of all enzymes involve metals. In other words, the metals carry out a critical role in physiological chemistry. That makes it very much an inorganic chemistry of the biosphere that's the difference between bioinorganic chemistry therefore and bioorganic chemistry yeah you say that your research concerns metal ions in the body does that include only essential metals now that's a, that's a very good point while i said that about 30% of all enzymes involve a metal and therefore and then there are many other metals that carry out functions such as nerve impulse muscle activation and so on These are the essential metals, they're the ones that we eat, tend to call them minerals, but the body is also impacted by toxic metals, and bioinorganic chemistry plays a very important role in understanding how those toxic metals interact with the same proteins that the essential metals do. Toxic metals, of course, in everything we eat, and we are a dynamic organic entity so that everything in our body is turning over all the time, so therefore the Toxic metals quite often are flushed out if they are at very low levels. So if you eat some cabbage grown in, well, at the moment, if you eat leafy green vegetables grown in Holland Marsh, because it's near an industrial site and near heavy heavy urbanization, there will be lead and cadmium in those leafy green vegetables. That's because it gets washed out of the air or it gets incorporated from the soils. But there's such low levels that we can cope with them. The problem and a major part of bioinorganic chemistry is concerns what happens with 
much more toxic metals or metals that are toxic in much greater concentrations. And there are numerous outbreaks of heavy toxicity, meaning toxicity that kills a fraction of the population or maims them. And at the moment, for example, in Northern Ontario, up by Dryden, we have a lot of mercury that was spilled during the pulp and paper industries 50 years ago that now is polluting the waters and is absorbed by fish and the fish are eaten by population. That side of bioinorganic chemistry is critical to understanding how these toxic metals impact human health. How dangerous is it for a healthy cell to receive that? Almost all these metallodrugs are very toxic. And, and I think this is quite general for many of the anti-cancer chemotherapy agents, that is drugs you take and radiation. You wouldn't want to have either exposure to those drugs or exposure to the radiation if you're healthy, because in both cases there is damage. But it's a you know, payoff, you know, the, the risk and the benefit. The benefit is if you can kill the cancer cell, then the rest of the physiological chemistry can recover. So particularly chemotherapy is pretty tough. The, the, the biggest, the most um, well-known of the metallodrugs used in chemotherapy is called cisplatin. It's a pl small platinum molecule, platinum-based molecule. And it's a, exposure to that is deadly for the kidneys. Uh, in other words, when it is released, when it's put in the body and it flushes out through the kidneys, it typically causes immense damage to the kidneys. But there is a way around it. And what one does is one co-administers bismuth salts back to bismuth. And that, in, that enhances the production of that protein I talked about before, metallothionine, in the kidney. And therefore, as the platinum comes through, the metallothionine binds the, 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 metallothionine binds the platinum drug. And then it's excreted much more safely and, and preserves the kidney function. So you, you get round the problem. But you wouldn't want to do any of this if you're healthy. Now I'd like to transition and talk about some of your research regarding solar technology. I think a lot of our listeners would be surprised to know that this technology has existed as far back as 1839. Why is it that only more recently we've seen it arise as a modern mainstream alternative technology? The simple answer is that we are looking for green sources, renewable energy sources. And so we have, I mean, in this province, we have done this continuously. We call our electricity hydro. I mean, of course it isn't hydro. It's just because hydroelectric power generation dominates Ontario's power production. The issues with the secondary level, after that in Ontario particularly, um, is that you have to decide how you're going to generate power and we use coal a lot. Canada has a lot of coal in the West, but the coal is dirty. When it burns, it's very pollute. It causes a lot of pollution. And so, in closing down those coal power stations, Ontario is very good. We're not not a, there's still coal generation in in Canada, but in Ontario we've closed down them, including amongst the largest in the world. And you have to replace that generation with something, and that something is complicated. We have nuclear generation, which is clean and neat and tidy. The problem comes in burying the waste, but 
to some extent, the Canadian, the can-do system is fairly clean. I mean, you bury it the easiest way is to leave it underwater. Um, and they're safe reactors, but of course, you know, they, they're expensive. So you look around for an alternative and the, to, the alternatives, uh, amongst others, are, bi are geothermal. So you dig a big hole and you pump, you get energy out of the heat, if you like, out of the ground. There's an interesting thermal system with pipes going out into Lake Ontario in Toronto, same sort of idea, change of temperature. Or you use the wind and you have wind turbines and finally you come back to solar. Solar has the advantage of being really portable. You can generate, you can put a solar panels on the roof of your house and generate electricity. You don't need a massive mass to put a turbine on and so on. So the advantage of solar is portability. Now, previously, the solar panels were very expensive and there were only a few ways of generating enough power. You notice now if you go in the country, you're driving along an empty country road, you come along, come to a stop sign, you'll see the solar panel above it. In other words, it's running. This is not connected to the infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure, it's running off the solar panel. So there is a, those types of usage have become economical and that is generating the progress because as the panels become cheaper, as the panels generate more electricity per panel, so they become more cost effective. Say my local neighborhood decides to exclusively run on solar power. Where does your research interests and overall vision within this field come into play? Our conceptual interest is based on the solar village, the, the, the isolated village. So you have an off-grid subdivision. So I said a village, I should have said subdivision. The villages are already in place. And if you have a concept of saying, let's we, we develop a new subdivision and we're not going to connect it to the grid. So we save a vast amount of money, don't need a big power line coming in. So how are you going to generate enough power? What's your concept of the subdivision? So let's say you have 100 houses. These 100 houses are all connected together. Today, that's easy. And each of those houses is going to have a big base battery in the basement. Not so easy, but doable. Now you have to say, well, where are you going to put the solar panels? Currently, you have to use the silicon type, silica type panels, which are rigid and not flexible and heavy and expensive. And you, they're the ones we see everywhere, especially in living in London. If we go outside, we see, go past farms, we see these great panels. They work, they produce the electricity, but they are expensive. What we think should happen is that the house roofs on all your houses should essentially be the solar panels. And there are two ways of doing this. One way is to put a polymer on top of the roof. So the roof tiles, not shingles in this case, we would actually have tiles as in Asia, when you think of a typical, and in Europe, lots of tiles on all the houses. Those tiles would actually be solar cells and you would have a polymer attached to the top because they, otherwise they wouldn't be strong enough. And that polymer has to absorb light. And the question is, what dye do you use? The dye has to be robust, tough, and it has to be able to be in, 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 inserted into a dye and then into, I'm sorry, into a polymer and then a whole lot connected together. So if you look down on this subdivision, all you will see is particularly green or blue, greenish, bluish tinge of these roof tiles, 
there would be no obvious solar panels, but in fact, every single roof would be a solar panel. So our research is aimed at that dye. How do, can we can we improve the the function and the efficiency of the dye? And if we can, can we improve the stability of the dye because it's got to sit under the sun a long time? And so let's go through that process. So what relationship does the dye have to the photons it's absorbing? What is the attraction there? Yeah, that, that is, <laughs> is a good question. Just look at any leaf and there is your dye and you say, okay, so that's a green leaf. So it's chlorophyll. So what's it doing? Well, what the chlorophyll does in the green leaf is absorb photons in the red region so six seven seventeen nanometers just on the edge of our visual um visible region that our eyes can detect so just on the edge on the red because it absorbs at the red it leaves the yellow and blue light therefore looks green so that's so the color we see is actually white light reflected back to us so those red photons that are absorbed have a certain energy something in the order of a, a, a 1.5 volt the aa battery so you get that amount of electron volts out of it. Having absorbed the light, the way it works is that the dye has available electrons. All dyes have every, and those electrons are excited into an excited state at a certain energy. It's quantum mechanics, so it's a fixed energy. That, once the electron gets up into the excited state, it now has that amount of potential energy. You could think of it as saying, if you think of a basketball net, if you throw a ball up into the top of the net, when the ball comes down, it has potential energy. So it doesn't come down slowly. It's, of course, attracted by gravity, but it comes down at quite a rate because of the potential energy. If you put that ball in the net onto a turbine, like a windmill, no, I'm sorry, like a water mill, then the turbine will go round. You could generate electricity from the ball falling into that water mill. Same thing happens in our electron. The electron's in the excited state. If you trap it, in coming down, it generates electrical, electrical energy. And that's how the solar cell works. That's how the leaf works. The leaf does exactly that. It traps the electron in the excited state. And by trafficking it through the membrane, it picks off the electrical energy on its way down and it can do various chemistries with it. In the leaf, the point is to reduce a precursor to the production of sugars. In our case, we don't care where we put the electrons, we just want to store them. So we do the same thing as the leaf, we trap them, and then we put the electrons, say, into a battery. We do work with it. We could turn a windmill, we could do what we like, but we do work. The way the dye works then is it picks up solar energy, which is free. The solar energy is converted into potential energy by exciting the electron into the excited state. And at that point, you do what you can do with it. It's imitating some of the natural processes that occur in leaves, right? Which is, which is really cool. But are there any other examples of this in your work where you have to design the technology, obviously, but the inspiration is actually all around you? <laughs> the leaf actually is not very efficient. Not only does the leaf not really absorb as many, it doesn't absorb photons at the rate it should do, it also is so energetically uh, dangerous for the leaf that about every 20 minutes everything is remade so this is continuously remaking the, the system now we can't do that so our designs are based on molecules that 
look like chlorophyll, but they're designed to be tougher than chlorophyll because we can't remake, we don't have a mechanism in our polymers to remake them. We have to make a molecule that can last five or 10 years without getting bleached. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. So you look at two different types of chemistry, one inside the body and one in nature. Which one do you think is developing at a faster rate? Which one do you think we're at a better spot in in 2020? <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, it's like, it's like you ask a musician, which piece do they really like? What's their favorite music? The musician will say, well, the piece I'm playing now. I mean, in other words, and then if they play a different piece, then... So I've been doing this job for a long time. I actually enjoy the challenges of all each project. You can't really place them on a trend line. Uh, it, it, we're not engineering because tomorrow can be a holdup that would stop us for six months. And this is one of the problems that you can be caused. You think you're going fast and then something can slow you down. So I think all of it is... In our bio, in my bioorganic group, and we call ourselves a bio and a Stillman bioorganic group, all us, the very many students who've come through, researchers who've worked on us, each of their projects changed the our understanding of the world, either from a technological point of view, that is, or from a physiological point of view, and each contributed to knowledge, and that knowledge, in time, permeates. So I noticed some papers of ours, people now pick up and say, they're 10 years old and they say, now knowing this, well, you know, we knew it 10 years ago, it's only become appropriate today. So you can't predict the future. I, I'm reminded of the Nobel Prize that was just, was recently awarded to, for physics. And it was awarded for the development of compressing a laser into very sharp, fine, packets which allowed certain types of um, optical work to be done but that work was done you know 20 years ago but only recently was it recognized as being um, so unique and so fundamental to the optical community and to technology that it the, that she received the or shared the nobel prize you don't know what your work is doing really until five years 10 years 15 years later you look back and say well what changed the world speaking of things that changed the world what's next in solar cell implementation i think getting the i think getting the um the dye polymer mix right so that we get stability because when i said that we absorb photons so we design dyes that absorb more photons in a better wavelength range than the leaf and are, and are therefore very good contenders to to act as absorbers of light, especially low levels of light. And of course, in the northern hemisphere, it whereas on a day like today, if we're very bright, we want we need to absorb the light as wide a range as we can, even in the even into the dusk, because of, that's the issue with solar cell. Of course, is that when the sun goes down, we don't have any solar photons. But there are photons. They're just very weak photons at that point. So we'll end here. As somebody with an extensive knowledge of the relationship certain metals can have with the cells in my body, what would you recommend I stay away from digesting? <laughs> well, I think you're okay. I think old tuna, certainly okay. 
most fish in Florida, but you can't go to Florida anywhere at the moment, but most fish in the Gulf of Mexico, warm, warm water fish, big, large warm water fish, shark, and so on, they are loaded with mercury. And so, mm. and I have a very interesting, there was a very good survey uh, of a good study issued by the uh, National Research Council of Canada in 1970s, a long time ago. And these researchers in northern, in Quebec, north of the St. Lawrence, measured the, the monomethyl mercury, the very dangerous neurological poison of mercury. They measured that in the blood within one hour and two hours after eating, after family ate fish, just taken from the St. Lawrence, just normal. So this is their normal life. They would, the fish were their typical source of protein. And the scary part was that the blood led, the blood level of mercury shot up. They then compared the blood level of mercury with neurological issues reported by the community. And it wasn't one-to-one -one because this is also, it was very close though to a linear trend. So the more fish you ate, the greater the chance was that you would have neurological issues. And this could be all the way from not sleeping all the way to dementia. So unfortunately in Canada, because we are surrounded by waters full of fish, those are, unfortunately in many cases, those fish are not safe. Now, does that mean you should stop eating tuna or stop eating shark? Um, steaks? No, you just don't eat them every day or every, you know, more than once a week. And you just have to check where they come from. So we'll wrap up there, but uh, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, it's interesting to do this, and I think it's probably very important, actually. Well, uh, you did a great job, so thank you. Oh, well, you're very good as a host. That concludes another episode of Western Science Speaks. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, and Podbean by searching Western U Science. You can find previous episodes of the show at uwo.ca slash sci slash podcast. For now, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.